Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Good morning, Crosswalk. My name's Jeff Gunn, and I'm the pastor here at Crosswalk, and I would like you to have your Crosswalk notes in your right hand and your Bible in your left hand and open to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read uh, beginning at verse 9. This is an amazing story. Jesus is in his early ministry, and he's calling his disciples, and he's having to figure out, who do I let in? Right? I mean, there, there are going to be, as we know, 12 followers of Jesus who are extremely close to him and who will follow his every footstep, watch his every move, be with him 24-7. If you read this entire section, there's, there are certain people who actually approach Jesus and, and say to him, can I follow you? And he says, wait a minute, you know, do you really understand what that means? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. If you have your own Bible, you can read with me in chapter 8, verse 20. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus actually says to to someone, you better think twice before I let you in. Another man comes up to him, and and he's called a disciple. And he says, Lord, if... I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Don't go back and bury your dad. Wow, tough, tough words, huh? And now in Matthew chapter 9, kind of interestingly, Jesus picks someone kind of unlikely and says, I want you to follow me. So let's read about that, the calling of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you ever struggle with this question? Who do I let in to my circle of friends? If, um, if you're anything like me, you've probably made some mistakes about that in the past and had friends uh, who influenced you in ways that Later on, you looked back and said to yourself, man, how could I have been so dumb? I didn't choose very well when I chose that person and let them into my inner circle. And if you're like me, you also probably have some people in your life that you said, oh my goodness, I am so glad that this person is my friend. I, I literally, I don't know what I would do unless, unless I had this friend in my life. Uh, they have been so good to me. They have helped me so much. And it would be impossible to think of living without that person, right? We've, we've had both sides of those. And it's, it's interesting because just this week, the guy who has 500 million friends, anybody know what his name is? Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, actually had several things happen where he must have been sitting back and going, wow, 
Who should I have let in? Uh, just this weekend, it caught my attention because of this message and how we've sort of uh, borrowed a little bit. If, if you notice uh, the, the face-to-face logo there, that remind you of anything? It caught my attention on the Piers Morgan show on CNN. Two gentlemen were interviewed. The Winklevoss brothers. Does that name ring a bell to you? Probably not. Probably nothing close to the name Mark Zuckerberg, but... The Winklevoss twins, Olympic athletes, claim to be the ones who had the original idea for Facebook. And in fact, they brought a lawsuit against Mark Zuckerberg and sued him for millions of dollars because their claim is, they they allege that he stole their idea. And, and made off with it, and of course made millions and millions. Actually, he's the youngest billionaire that our country has ever known, according to one report. So I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg, 500 million friends, is thinking to himself, hmm, should I have let these guys into my life? And probably vice versa. They're thinking, should I have gone to him and asked him for his help with this Facebook deal? And then, on top of all of that, perhaps you heard of this gentleman named Pradeep Manukanda. Anybody hear of that name this week? You know what he did? He began to stalk Mark Zuckerberg via Facebook, asking him for money until finally Mark had to, um, he had to go get a restraining order against this gentleman. You see, we live in a very interesting time, don't we? Just uh, yesterday at the marriage seminar, one of the participants uh, was talking about meeting young men uh, on, on uh, various dating sites, right? And she told about how when someone would contact her, she would do extensive background research on these guys that were contacting her because she wanted to know more about that person, all with the question in her mind, do I let this person in or not? All I'm saying to you is this is a huge question in today's society and culture, and it was a question also for Jesus. Why do we sometimes have such a struggle figuring out how to form healthy friendships. Take out your crosswalk notes, and let's, let's just put that down as the question that we're going to try to answer today. Why do many of us struggle to form healthy friendships? And can I tell you that if I'm thinking about Mark Zuckerberg or the, the, the Winklevoss twins or... Uh, anybody meeting anyone almost in our world today, one of the reasons why I believe we struggle in figuring out who do I let in is we've been burned. There, for most of us, have been times in our lives when we have reached out and made a friend, and that friend has let us down, or we feel like they've betrayed us, and now we have trust issues. We're, we're really concerned about whether or not we can let another person in. And so what do we do? We build walls. We build walls. And I want you to uh, write down what I think are the three most common walls that we build in our lives. Because once you've been burned, once you've been hurt, you, you don't really want 
to be hurt again. What's wall number one? Wall number one is hurt. Wall number two is hate. And wall number three is hubris, H-U-B-R-I-S. We'll come back and talk about each one of those. So if you've ever been in a relationship, many of us nowadays have, have been in business partnerships or marriages or best friendships, and, and a person has let us down, and that sudden betrayal, that feeling like I never expected that, just creates a huge well of hurt in our lives. And we're left going, how, how am I ever going to get past that? And when you come to church, you hear Jesus talk about forgiveness, and you hear him say things like, you got to forgive the person who hurts you 70 times seven times, and you're sitting there thinking, wow, how am I ever going to do that? How am I ever going to get past this hurt and get to forgiveness? And, and what often happens is that instead of forgiveness, we just build a wall so that we don't get hurt again. And then there's hate, right? If you really feel betrayed and you get angry, then the, it, it's not just going to be hurt. It's going to be, man, I cannot stand that person. I never want to see them again in my life. And there's clashes and building on the hurt. You start to go back and forth and argue. Watching that interview of the Winklevoss twins and how they felt they were completely betrayed and that injustice was done. I was actually kind of amazed at, at how they were able to sort of keep it on a pretty classy plane, at least in that interview. But you could sense that Underneath it all, just boiling up, was the sense of deep injustice. Many of us have felt that. And then we struggle with not just hurt, but hate. And how do we get past that? And then the last one, and one that we see in our text today, is hubris. Who knows what hubris is? It's not a word that we use a whole lot. Hubris is an old Greek word, actually, that's been brought over into the English and it's a word that simply means pride. Uh, a word that, that means, I think I'm better than anyone else. And when you start to think you're better than someone else, then you will put up a wall that says, I can't associate with those kind of people. That was very common in Jesus' day, especially among the group called the Pharisees. They felt that they were called to be holy people, perfect people. And to associate with Gentiles or sinners or in particular to associate with tax collectors, that was a problem. And so they held themselves back. They built up walls around themselves and they just did not associate with people that they thought were of too low a position for them. Now, these are the ways that many of us filter our friendships. These are the ways that many of us would say, who do I let in? Well, I'm certainly not going to let that person in because I can see the hurt coming down the track already. And you've got that wall built and you're, you're afraid of being hurt again or you're, you're angry at a person and you say, I'm not forgiving them. They're not getting back into my life ever. Or we think in some way, we're better than or more than or higher than 
someone else and we say, oh, that's an easy decision. <laughs> Let that person be my friend? No. And we wall them out. And so we have these sort of ways of saying, who do I let in? The question for us today is, how did Jesus decide who to let in? And it's very interesting to watch as he's building his disciple team, how he chooses those who are going to be let in. And I'll I'll tell you, one of the beauties and the wonders of it is is that as we think of ourselves as modern-day disciples, to know, wow, Jesus, true God, has let me in despite the fact that he is way higher and way better than me. He's let me in despite the fact that he has every reason to be angry with me, to hate on me, Because I've sinned against him. He's let me in even though I've hurt him many times with the the sins that I've committed, the breaking of the commandments, the refusing to listen to him, the rebelling against him. I've hurt him so many times. I've hurt his heart, and yet he still says to me, Jeff, come on. I want you in I want you to be one of my disciples, one of my friends, not even just that, one of my family. I want you to be my brother. To think that Jesus would let me in, it puts a whole new perspective, a a way different perspective than just deciding who gets in on the basis of hurt or hate or hubris. And that's what we want to talk about. And we start with just this thought. I know this from my own personal experience from reading the Bible. Jesus knocks down walls. And it is good to be his friend. And when we start to consider, who do I let into my life? We have to start with that thought. I'm Jesus' friend. Because he friended me. He called me into his life, and then he called me back into his life again after I sinned and rebelled against him. And then... No matter how many times I've done that, he keeps coming after me because his love and his friendship are relentless. It's an incredible, incredible thought. And all that in spite of what the Bible says about me and says about you. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Would you uh, read this together with me? There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands No one who seeks God, all have turned away. Now, just motor on that for a minute. What's that saying? Is it saying that you and I reached out for God because we wanted him to be our friend? Is it saying that we came up to Jesus and said, man, Jesus, I'm friending you? Nope. It's saying that when we got the friend request from Jesus... We turned away. We clicked on the little box that says reject. And and we turned away from God. And in fact, it says everyone has done that, that there's really no one who truly understands what it means to be a friend of Jesus by nature. In fact, it's really saying that it's going to take supernatural 
Holy Spirit power to turn our hearts and minds around so that we can even consider being a friend of Jesus and following him. And all through this process, Jesus is saying to you and me, here I am. Here I am. I I want you to be my friend. I want you to be my brother, my sister. Here I am. Look at what it says in Revelation. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There's that relentless friendship that we see so much about in the Bible that Jesus comes and he, and he keeps inviting and keeps calling and he sends his Holy Spirit to overcome our sinful nature that says, no, I don't want to be a friend with Jesus. There's a song that we're going to sing at the end of this message. It has a beautiful line in it. I want you to hear it. O child of God, dearly loved and ransomed by the Savior's blood, and called by name daughter and son, wrapped in the robe of righteousness. Here's the first thing that we need to know when we're considering who do we let into our lives. We need to consider how Jesus let us into his life, wrapped us in that robe of righteousness, called us friend and called us more than friend, called us daughter and son. And so here's what I want you to write down. Deciding who to let into our lives begins with valuing our friendship in Jesus. Really understanding what Jesus has done for us first. Matthew got that, I think. Because look at what he does. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. You can flip over your crosswalk notes or open, open your Bibles back up. It says, as Matthew went on from there, he saw a man man named Matthew, or as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him, and Matthew must have been amazed. Here's this tax collector, right? Do you know how tax collectors got their money? By ripping people off. That's how they got their money. What they, were, what they did was they were collaborators with the Roman government. Right then and there, they weren't very popular to the Jews. So Matthew, who was himself a Jew, had really crossed two major lines. He was a thief because tax collectors just tended to collect more money than what was really due to them so that they could line their own pockets. And he was also a collaborator. He was a Jew working for the Roman occupiers. This did not make him exactly popular to his fellow Jews, right? And here comes this rabbi, this teacher. And if you read around here, you see that crowds of people are following him. He's he's exceptionally popular. And Jesus could have been thinking to himself, you know, I got to tend to this popularity thing. There's crowds following me. I better be very careful who I let into my inner circle here. Certainly, I don't want to let in someone who is viewed as a thief and a collaborator. He could have said that. But he didn't. He said, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew gets the value of that call. Look at what it says next. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house... Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What does Matthew do once he's called? He throws a big party, a big old Matthew party. And he invites his friends and he says, look, someone thinks I'm valuable enough to be in his inner circle of friends. This someone happens to be the son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one that we've all been waiting for. And Matthew calls all his friends together and he says, I want you to meet this guy named Jesus. And apparently some Pharisees catch wind of this and they observe what's going on at the party there at Matthew's place. Matthew just rejoicing over being part of this. And they ask this question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that really leads us to the next answer to our question today. Jesus is letting tax collectors and sinners into his circle. Now think about how ironic this is. Because the Bible says that he is the holy son of God, perfect, without any sin, that he lived his entire life completely righteously. Never slipped once. Yet, in his circle are all these people that are not only viewed as bad, they are bad. They're tax collectors and sinners. They're doing things that are not only wrong in people's eyes, they're wrong in God's eyes. And Jesus says, come on in here and join me. And you have to believe that how Jesus is choosing his friends might be a little bit different. He's asking a different question than you and I often ask. Here's the question that we often ask. Do I choose the friends I have because they will meet my needs? Do I choose the friends who will meet my needs? When I look around for friends, am I looking for people who will help me, make me feel better about myself, make me feel like I'm stronger and smarter. Help me when I need their help. Do I choose my friends according to the people that will help me? That's the way many people would choose. Now flip over. Your paper, not yourself. Or do I choose the friends whose needs I can meet? Have you ever thought about choosing your friends on the basis of the fact that maybe that person has a need that God has given you a gift you can meet. Here at Crosswalk, we often talk about two mentalities. You've heard me use this metaphor many times before. We talk about a reservoir mentality. What does a reservoir do? Here in Arizona, we know very well, right? It collects and it collects and it collects and it tries to hold as much water as it can for that time when it's needed, right? What's a river do? It just keeps flowing. And the water that comes into it passes through it and goes on down the line to others. 
Which mentality did Jesus have when he chose his friends? Was it, hey, I just need to build up more friends so I can feel better about myself? Was it sort of the Facebook mentality? How many friends do you have? And then if you can say, well, I have 400 friends, you feel so much better than the person who has only 100 friends? The reservoir was at the river. I want to meet people whom I can help. And I want my blessings, I want my power, I want my wisdom to flow through them down onto others. Do you know what happens right after this chapter in chapter 9? Anybody got their Bible open? Take a look at what the title says in Matthew chapter 10. What does he do? After he collects these 12 to himself, what does he do? He sends them on out to others because he doesn't have the reservoir mentality. He has the river mentality. He is not going, how can I have these guys meet my needs? It's how can I help these guys meet other people's needs? And how can I give them my wisdom and my strength? Take a look at what it says in Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing, it says. Underline those words. Including picking your friends. Including picking your friends. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The river mentality, not the reservoir mentality. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." So here's the next part of the answer to your question. Once you know you have Jesus as your friend, that changes things for you. And that's why I put that one first. First, fix it firmly in your head. Don't let go of this truth. Jesus is my friend. Build your entire identity off of that. Because Jesus is my friend, I am a dearly loved child of God. That's who I am. I'm God's son. I'm God's daughter. And when you have that confidence in you, then you can ask yourself this question, how do I want to pick my friends? And determine that intentionally. Am I going to pick all my friends because they feed me? Or am I going to pick friends because I know I have something that I, can, that I can do to help them? Am I going to pick my friends on the basis of what it says here in Philippians, following the model of Jesus, and look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others? And I pick my friends not out of ambition or conceit, but, but going, man, no matter what's going on in this other person's life, no matter how hurting they might be, that is a dearly loved soul, someone maybe that I can help. And choose friends on that basis too to know that you can bless someone else with your river mentality. So here's number two. Determine why you want to have friends. 
based on knowing who you are in Christ, based on knowing that your friendship with him because of his faithful love for you is solid and strong, then say, maybe God has given me that friendship so that I can pass it on to others and and be sent like those disciples were sent to go on and bless others. Determine why you want to have friends. Now, right under that, it says, perhaps the biggest friendship killer of all, with a blank behind it. Do you know what it is? At least, it's what I think it is. I'll tell you a little story. I was living in Africa, and uh, I had begun to develop some really strong friendships with some fellow Zambian pastors. And um, one day I remember calling this one pastor, Pastor Peter, a friend. And he said, man, you know, you're my friend too. And from there on, we just built this great relationship. And, uh, and we truly became friends. And in my mind, you know, that had my certain meaning to it. In his mind, that had his certain meaning that we had learned from our various cultures of what friend is, Right? One evening, I came back from a long trip to, to the southern province. This was a, a trip I made monthly. And it was usually uh, four or five nights of camping out in various villages where we had churches and congregations. And I got home late in the evening, just before sunset. I hadn't seen my children or my wife, as I said, for four or five days. And I was beat. I'd driven miles And I got in the house, got my luggage unpacked, and then I heard this little clinking at the gate, which was the way of of knocking. And I went out, and there was Pastor Peter's wife. And she had been staying uh, at the clinic that our church ran. And um, I uh, talked to her and greeted her, and after a little bit of small talk, she said, you know, I've been staying at the clinic a long time, and I really need to get back home to my family. I was wondering if you could take me home to my village tonight. And I knew that it was about an hour one way and then an hour back over uh, pretty uh, bumpy, rut-hole-filled roads in the rainy season that I'd be lucky to get back home in two hours. And so I said to her, could it wait till morning? I tried to explain to her that I was tired. I'd been on a long journey. And she got very angry with me. And she said, I thought you had told my husband that you were his friend. This isn't exactly friendship now, is it? Well, I didn't understand fully, but later it was explained to me that at least in this Area. I'm not sure if this is really true of all of Africa, but at least in this area that, that the people had been taught when you called someone friend, that meant that you, you would not refuse a request. Friend meant if, if, if you were approached with a request, you were going to drop everything and fulfill that request. And if you did not drop everything and fulfill that request immediately... You weren't truly a friend. In her mind, I had been claiming something 
that I was not showing myself to be. That took a long time to repair that relationship. A long time. We went through some initial anger and then got to forgiveness, and by God's grace, we repaired that relationship. But that story has always reminded me that we have to be very clear when we get into relationships and not just assume things. And if I want to, if I think about what is a huge obstacle in many relationships and, and how they can continue and how they can be formed, the word that comes to my mind is assumptions. That's what I want you to write there. Perhaps the biggest friendship killer of all, assumptions. Have you ever gotten into a relationship where you were assuming it meant one thing and the other person was assuming that it meant something different? Come on, any of you who have dated have been through that, right? Okay? And, and I'm telling you, if we don't get clear on our assumptions about what friendship really means when we're getting into those friendships, and if we're not clear about our definitions of different things, even when it's not cross-cultural, even when it's someone who's grown up in the same culture and background as you have, assumptions can be huge relationship killers. Even what love means. Because I think our society and our culture in general here in America teaches a lot of false things about what love is. And that's why you and I, if we want to understand love from God's point of view, we have to keep going back to the Bible and get our assumptions cleared up and get on the same page with God about what love is. Take a look at what it says in Romans chapter 12, for example. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. What's Paul telling the Romans? Love is devotion. To be fully engaged in your heart and mind with another person and to honor someone above yourself. Romans 12, he continues. Notice that these are all from the same chapter. He's talking about love here. And he's saying, look, when you, when you get angry with someone, when someone gets angry with you, when they fight back, when they try to hurt you, you fight fire with fire? God says no. You fight fire with water. <laughs> fight fire with water and bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do we understand, do we have that right assumption between us in our friendships that this is how love works, true godly love, that we're not going to fight fire with fire. We're going to fight fire with water. And when someone persecutes us and curses us, we're going to bless them. We're going to pray for them. Romans 12, 15 to 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Does love mean empathy to you? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Love and pride and conceit do not belong in the same heart and mind is what God is saying to us. And honestly, this is just a small taste. In your little notes thing, I want you to write down 1 Corinthians 13. Write that down. 
And after the service, sometime during the week this week, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, camp out on that verse sometime this week. And as you're camping out on 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 12, read all of Romans 12. I want you to ask this simple question. Do I know what friendship really is? Do I respect God's definition of love and kindness and friendship? Because if I don't know what God's definition of friendship is and kindness and love... How do I decide who to let in? I need to be able to understand it and respect what true friendship in God's eyes is before I can make that decision. And that's our third point. Respect what friendship is and does, how it acts. And and when we gain a respect, a knowledge from 1 Corinthians 13, from Romans chapter 12 and many other places in the Bible of what friendship is really about, then then we're going to get it. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Why does Jesus say this? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does Jesus say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Because the Jews were making bad assumptions about what friendship with God was about, what showing love for God was about. Their assumption was that it was ritual, that it was sacrifice, that it was going through certain religious motions, and that if I went through those motions, if I went to the temple, if I celebrated the three feasts, if I made sure that I made my sacrifices on time and on place... Well, then God would know we're friends. And Jesus says, time out. Check your assumptions, ladies and gentlemen. Because what I, what God desires is not all the motions, not all the rituals, not the empty husk in the outside. What I want is your hearts. If you want to be friends with me, Know that I've given you my whole heart to the point where I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you and for an entire world of people like you. I'm going to lay it all on the line because of my love for you. That's what love is and does. And if you want to be my friend, that's what I'm asking back in return. Give me your whole heart, not the empty husk of actions and sacrifices. I want your heart. And I want your heart to be shared with others. Be merciful, be kind, be forgiving. If you're my friend, reflect that. Not only in how you worship me, but also in how you love and treat others. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Get in line with me in your assumptions about what love and friendship really are and respect that. And that's why this last one is so critically important. Respect what friendship is and does. There's a beautiful proverb, Proverbs 13, 20. When I read this proverb, I think, what a blessing that out of my five, 
you know, you all have to select your five for your phones, don't you? That there is really a more important one, Jesus Christ. People say that the five people that you most surround yourself, you will become a combination of those five. Think about that for a moment. Who are the five people that you most surround yourself with? You will become a combination of those five people. Hopefully one of those is Jesus Christ. And as you do that, and as you determine the reason why you want to have friends, either to get or to give, either to be a reservoir or a river, And then as you respect what friendship really means according to God, then you can answer this question and you will walk with the wise and you will grow wise and you will not be a companion of fools. Who do I let in? First, anybody want to tell me? Jesus, right? Next, those whom I can serve. Finally, those who respect, who understand friendship from God's point of view. Not easy to decide, who do I let in? But hopefully those three things will guide you. First, let Jesus in. Then think, whom can I serve? And then finally think, does this person respect and understand friendship the way God does and the way I do? Here's your next steps, living the adventure. Take a look at your friends list. Is Jesus on your list? And how much do you really value Jesus' friendship? And how would you measure that? Remember what God says? Remember what Jesus said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Read Romans 12, Philippians 2, and 1 Corinthians 13. I gave you two out of the three of those earlier Hear God and ask, how can I better respect what friendship is and does? And then meditate on and memorize Matthew 9, 13. What a a beautiful truth. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And for sinners like us, what a great thing to know that our God loves us. And then... um, there's a, a, this song that I mentioned earlier that the, the band is going to come out in just a moment and sing. And as you hear these words, I want you to reflect on the message that you've just heard about who do I let in. Here's this beautiful line in this song. So come home running. His arms are open wide. His name is Jesus. And he understands. He's the answer you're looking for. So come home running just as you are. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.